0: Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Emma Wong, who is chair of the RCGP's First Five Committee. The committee represents newly qualified GPs in their first five years of practice within the college. We're talking about making the transition from training to independent practice, the support that's available to new GPs, and Emma's decision to become a partner straight out of training, which is now becoming a more unusual career step. Emma also talks about why she thinks portfolio careers can benefit general practice. We've put some links to some useful resources that Emma mentions during this conversation in the notes for this episode. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Emma Wong, who's chair of the RCGP's First Five Committee and a GP partner in Sheffield. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thank you for inviting me. You're the chair of the First Five Committee. First of all, can you explain what we mean by a First Five GP and why the RCGP set up its First Five Committee?
1: So a first five GP is a GP who's within their first five years of CCT, the Certificate of Completion of Training. The RCGP set up the first five committee to focus on this group because it was found that This is the time when GPs can feel most like they need a little bit of extra help and support, because it can be quite a big transition to go from the fairly protected environment of GP training to suddenly being an independent practitioner. And especially if you're moving across the country to take up a new post and you don't know anyone, it can sometimes feel a little bit isolating. So the idea was to create networks in your local area of people who you can feed straight into. So that you would have other people at the same stage as you and be able to ask advice from and to access not only career and academic support but pastoral support as well.
0: Do you have quite
1: active groups
0: across the country?
1: We do so each faculty region so the college has faculty outposts in various different areas of the country and there's information about which faculty covers which area on the college website. But each faculty is made up of a board and each board has a first five representative. And the idea is that they're the go-to point for first fives in the area for any queries. And depending on which region they're in, there's a host of different events that you can access. So Manchester, for example, there's regular first five coffee mornings. And the London faculty is very active and I believe has gone back to face-to-face things. We have been trying to organise some face-to-face socials again in my faculty of South Yorkshire. And then, of course, there's national first five things that you can join in that facilitated by things like Zoom and the fact that we've all moved online during the pandemic from anywhere in the country. So the RCGP's been doing things like online cook-alongs, for example, where you sign up and you get taught how to make something. I think one of the last ones was how to make Vietnamese, and you just get to network with other people and do something a bit different, and it's a really good fun.
0: So why did you get involved in the committee and decide to stand for chair, and what does your role itself actually involve?
1: So as the 1st five chair... I'm responsible for all of the individual First Five representatives across the faculty we've just talked about. So my role is to have oversight of what's going on across the country, make sure that there's provision for First Fives and events going on. And you've heard me list a few. There's a lot more going on. The reason I became involved, I actually got involved with the college as an AIT, so an associate in training, because I wanted to meet new people and I wanted to see what else the college did. And it was nice to have a voice. And actually, the college do listen to what the GPs on the ground say. I became involved because the transition between AIT and First Five is difficult. And I wanted to know what support was available. And I wanted to help other people going through the same thing. I think we can make a real difference. And I think it's important that as the GPs of the future, we get involved with shaping what the profession is going to look like because the profession is in flux. And I think we have a real opportunity to help make the workforce sustainable and to help prevent burnout. And if there are any first five listening who have any suggestions of other things that we could be doing, other things that you think we should be offering, then please do get in touch. Because part of my role is to listen and take on board and make changes. And I'm always pleased to hear suggestions from people to see how we can make things better.
0: A lot of GPs who would have qualified over the last two years, they would have spent quite a large proportion of their training, particularly the bit in general practice in um, during the pandemic. And obviously, that's obviously been very, very different to people who would have come through GP training in the years before that. How do you think this has kind of affected new GPs, both in terms of, I guess, the stress and the difficulty, the pandemic, you know, and it, it made training very difficult, didn't it? Um, and, and do you think it's kind of affected how prepared they are for independent practice?
1: That's a really interesting question. Actually, I came into my ST3 so my final year of GP training, in February 2020. So I had about a week of what we would have previously called normal face-to-face GP before everything went into lockdown because of COVID. And we went to telephone. And it was an interesting transition because a lot of GP training previously was about seeing Patients face to face and developing those skills for your 10 minute consultation and everything else. And quite often, I think trainees wouldn't have that much experience with the telephone. And of course, as you've just said, COVID changed all that and there has now been a shift. Are we underprepared? I don't necessarily think we are. I think that at the moment, the majority of GP surgeries are running a hybrid model. So a mixture of telephone consultations and face to face. And one of the best things about GP is that you're always learning on the job. I think that face-to-face consultations is a skill. but I think it's a skill you continuously develop. Most of the, in fact, all of the GP training schemes are very supportive and uh, Clinical supervisors are normally very good at helping their trainees if they do something they need more experience. And of course, to be a GP trainee, you've done two years of face-to-face consultations as a foundation doctor in hospital. And then 12 months of GP training of seeing people face-to-face in hospital. So a lot of those skills are already there. Sometimes it just needs a little bit of refining. So
0: what sort of support do you think you know trainees need in the first five years and what are sort of the challenges that you face as you as you come out into independent practice
1: i think the best support network is talking to the people who have gone through training just before you and just finished and the people who are still coming up below you i think the greatest source of support is knowing what you have to do When you've qualified, there's a whole minefield of administrative stuff that you have to work your way through. So for example, applying for your certificate of completion, making sure you're registered for your indemnity, signing up to the performers list. I think that was one of the biggest challenges, just negotiating the minefield of paperwork from several different agencies. And sometimes it's not always clear where you're meant to look. So I think the biggest challenge for me was navigating the minefield of paperwork and administration because when you qualify you have to do several things like applying for your cct certificate applying to be on the gp register applying for the performers list and then of course if you want to do things like locum there's a whole minefield of tax pensions, et cetera, to navigate, which I think is really difficult and is the area that, from talking to my other first five colleagues, most people struggle with. There are resources out there. The college provides some. There are other private providers that offer resources, and the BMA has really useful things on their website as well but actually I think one of the best things was talking to the people who'd completed their GP training the year ahead of me who had just been through it and also the people who were completing their training with me because we were all in the same boat of really not having much of a clue of what we were doing. I think the other challenge is having the confidence to know that you can do it because essentially, by the time you're in ST3, and by the time you reach the end of ST3, you are working as an independent GP. It's just that you've got a very friendly, more senior GP in the room down the corridor, if you do need to ask any questions. And I think the important thing to remember is that when you do qualify and things can feel a bit challenging, you still have got a whole host of friendly GPs down the corridor. Just because you're no longer in training doesn't mean that you can't ask. And I've never yet met a GP colleague who has been upset if you go to them and ask for advice or just want to run something past them.
0: What I was thinking about really is whether there's there's more support we could be providing for new GPs in particular who have found themselves finishing their training maybe and qualifying and coming out into a, a workplace that is is really under the cosh at the minute.
1: Burnout is a very, very topical factor at the moment. And if you look at general practice now and you look at it three years ago when all of this started, then it was a very different landscape. And we do know that workload is increasing, patient complexity is increasing, there are some really useful well-being resources and services out there. And I know that the college and the BMA in particular have been working really hard to develop wellbeing services. I think the more that can be done to encourage any medic, not just GPs, to look after their own health and well-being, the better, because if we're not looking after ourselves, then how can we look after other people? And one service that I would really recommend for that is something called the Practitioner Health Programme. So that was actually set up by Claire Gerarda, who's the current president of the Royal College of General Practitioners, because she noticed that doctors are very, very bad at talking about when they're struggling, but are very good at putting a brave face on it. And the Practitioner Health Programme is run by gps and it offers support for people who are struggling with anxiety depression substance misuse addiction it's a self-referral if you google php it comes up and it will give you a list of practitioners in your area and you can pick your practitioner based on their interests and you can normally get an appointment to see them within a week and then there's also services like mentoring if you want a more experienced GP to talk to about workload and things. Again, RCGP is trying to develop its mentoring, but your local medical council often also offers mentoring and coaching services. And the BMA has a helpline as well for anyone who's struggling. So there are a lot of services out there. And I would encourage people to reach out because when you're overwhelmed, when you're overworked, it can feel very isolating. You can feel very alone and sometimes it really does help to have someone to talk to.
0: One of the things that was proposed about being introduced as part of the five-year contracts, and obviously lots of things have ended up being put on hold or are behind schedule because of the pandemic, was this idea of fellowship. So it's this idea that people would finish training and then they'd be able to go into a fellowship and do a two-year programme, which would enable them to be kind of attached to a PCN area, maybe depending on how it worked in local areas, and kind of help people make this transition to... Um, independent practice or or maybe help them just to stay in a local area rather than moving around a lot do you know how well these schemes are going they
1: have got off the ground and actually i am on the fellowship scheme here in south yorkshire as you said it's a two-year program And I believe when it was set up, the idea was to provide support, experience working in the PCM and portfolio working, and to provide learning and development opportunities to give you a chance to get involved with leadership. And again, the all-important thing of meeting other people in your area who are at the same stage as you. I think there's quite a bit of flexibility in the way the fellowships have run. The way it runs here is that we have weekly sessions which are at the moment delivered by zoom from either gps with an extended or special interest who uh, help us keep our clinical knowledge up to date and then we have face-to-face group meetings so Most of the people on the fellowship are first fives to see how everybody else is doing, to find out how things are working in different practices. And as part of that, we're also offered mentoring from local GPs and coaching services, which we alluded to just now, which can be very helpful for working out future career goals and working out where you want to go.
0: You're bucking the trend in many ways because you've actually gone straight into partnership after qualifying. I was talking to the chair of the BMA GP trainee subcommittee recently, and they've just done a survey. And um, Basically, found that 55% of trainees want to be salaried GPs, 27% want to be locum GPs, and only 23% said they intended to become a partner at any point in their career. So I was just wondering, what made you decide to become a partner?
1: I've always wanted to be a partner because I like to be at the forefront of driving change. I think that if you can see where things can be improved, then we should be making those improvements And that's one of the great things about being a GP. We have so many opportunities to innovate and with the partnership model, because as a partnership, you're independent contractors, you can help tailor your services to meet the needs of your population, because the needs of the population I'm looking after here in Sheffield might not be the same as the needs of a population, for example, down in London. And I think that's fantastic. I understand why a lot of people might not want to be partners. It is a lot of extra work and there is a whole new business, finance, managerial governance side that actually is often not covered in the training scheme. And I think part of that is because there is so much to cover as a GP trainee. I think it's, it's almost a lifestyle choice because of the extra work. I think it's absolutely fine to not want to be a partner. It's not for everybody. But at the same time, I don't think it's as scary as it might look when you're an ST3 and you're thinking, oh, goodness, I'm going to be doing this by myself. So I definitely encourage people to think about it and not to be cut off by thinking, I can't do it. That's not me. But I still think it should be a choice of whether you want to be a partner or a salary because what's right for one person isn't necessarily right for someone else's circumstances.
0: You're obviously quite passionate about being a partner um, and the partnership model is obviously something that's really underpinned the way general practice has been de- delivered in this country for forever, really. Do you think it's something we should be worried about if lots of newly qualified GPs don't want to be partners and the long-term viability of the partnership model? Do you think that's something we should be concerned about?
1: I would like to see more GPs wanting to take up partnership. And as you probably know, there are talks at the moment about whether the contract is going to remain for a partnership model or not. I think the partnership model is great because of what I've said before about the freedom it gives us to innovate. And I think it is a worry that more newly qualified GPs and younger GPs don't want to take up partnership. I wonder if wider access to things like the new partnership scheme and the leap forward that's been made Mm -hmm. in recent years. And again, I think this was coming out before COVID, but COVID has galvanized things. The leap towards well-being and other support in the workforce might help people take up partnership. Because if people's health and well-being looks after, you feel able to do more and take on more.
0: No, that's a really good point, I think. Yeah, I think it is very hard at the minute with everything being so difficult in general practice to to see how more people would want to become partners, really. Obviously, as you have someone who's qualified relatively recently, what advice would you give to people coming up to qualify about what they should do in their, their first year? I mean, not necessarily about becoming a partner, but just generally, is there any tips or advice you'd give people?
1: Take a deep breath. <laughs> you can do it. You've been three years in training, you've passed your exams, you have all the skills and tools you need, and you can refine them and you can polish them. But you can do it and you are a GP. I'd also say ask questions. Don't ever be afraid to ask questions, even when you're qualified. That's one of the best things about being any kind of doctor, the ability to ask questions and find things out. Don't ever feel like you're alone because you may not have the answers the person that you ask may not have the answers but by putting your heads together you'll probably be able to find out where to go next and join your local networks get to know the local gps in your area because they will be your support structure and it's so important to have that support
0: one of the things you mentioned earlier when you were talking about being a partner um is uh, is around like leadership and management, and uh, there's been a real emphasis in recent years, um, you know, probably pre-pandemic, uh, uh, on this whole idea of leadership skills for GPs and leadership skills for doctors of, of of all kinds. Actually, do you think that having those leadership skills is important, and do you think it's something that there should be more of within GP training?
1: To be a doctor, I think we all have innate leadership skills even if we don't realize it. As doctors, we're very good at suffering from imposter syndrome, feeling like we don't have those skills or we're not good enough to be where we are. Leadership training is certainly valuable to show people what kind of skills they have. And from that point of view, yes, I think it is useful to have some focus on leadership training because a lot of the time the things we do we don't realise our leadership, things like, for example, organising your practice, rotor, things like looking at your cost indicators in your practice. We're doing it all day, every day. And I think sometimes just realising that you are already doing it can be helpful. There are also lots of other programmes out there that you can access during GP training over and above what's on the BTS scheme. There's a program called Next Generation GP, which I and several colleagues have been a part of. And that is a fantastic program organized by an excellent doctor in Cambridge, Nishma Mamek. And the idea of that program, it runs across regional areas, is to give GPs in the first five, seven years after their CCT, a chance to attend seminars. A lot of it's been online because of the pandemic with NHS leaders. So, for example, Nikki Kanani, Nick Harding, Robert Varnham. And it's a very informal evening, again, networking with your peers in the region. And you get to hear from these leaders about their leadership journeys what they've done, how they've got where they are, and what skills and things they've developed. And it's interesting, if you talk to a lot of people who find themselves in leadership roles, they quite often find themselves there by serendipity. Someone says to them, have you ever thought of doing this? Or ask them to come and be on a podcast, and all of a sudden somebody else asks them, and then you find that you're near the top of the tree.
0: Portfolio careers have obviously become like very popular. Everybody wants to have a portfolio career now. Do you think that's a positive thing for the future of general practice?
1: I think portfolio careers are a very positive thing. It's fantastic that we have GPs that are engaged and enthusiastic and want to develop their skills. And the RCGP has been working on some pathways for GPs with extended roles. I know they've got one out for dermatology so that you can show that you've got the skills to do things like minor surgery. It's positive not only for the GPs because... It breaks up the working day and it means you learn something new, but it's also positive for patients. And I think one of the things we've seen during the pandemic is patients do still trust their GPs and they like to be under one person for their care. And especially with our more elderly populations or people who've been shielding, they enjoy being able to be seen at their local practice, not necessarily having to travel to hospital for appointments. So if we can offer services, and again, I say things like dermatology or coil fitting or implant fitting in the surgery, I think that can only be beneficial. I think having a diverse career and varying your career day to day also helps with some of the problems we talked about earlier of things like burnout. I've heard it said before that you bring your life experience to the job. And I think the more you see and the more you do, the better the GP you become. So I'm all for portfolio careers. But that having been said, again, it's a balancing act. And whilst I think the opportunity to have a portfolio career is great, I don't think there's anything wrong either with being a locum GP or a salaried GP who just wants to do the core GP job and go home. If you want to take up the opportunity, it's fantastic, it's there. But at the end of the day, it's about doing what's right for you and what's right for your patients.
0: We talked a little bit today about how hard it is in general practice. But one of the things I've always been struck with, and particularly in the last few years, is just what a varied career you can have if you qualify as a GP and how the fact you can build your career around the things that you are interested in and that you want to pursue. And I think that that's perhaps why we're seeing more and more people coming into GP training, because they're kind of recognising the flexibility. And that's a that's a really positive thing. We just need to make sure that when they get into general practice, people aren't retiring early or leaving early. And you know these new people coming in, they're actually new people to the workforce, not losing people at the top.
1: Like we said with leadership earlier, a lot of the things that we are developing special interests in, we do anyway. I do part of my working week as a training program director for GP training. And I'm lucky enough that I have a role and the recognition for that and time to develop my skills. But there are a lot of colleagues out there who are teaching, who are training, not just GPs and medical students, but all of our ARS roles, so our physios and our pharmacists, who actually are doing portfolio working without even realising they're doing portfolio working. So there's an awful lot of it going on.
0: Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Dr Emma Wong for speaking with me. I'm back next week when Nick and I will be looking at some of the key news stories affecting primary care. In the meantime, you can keep up with all the latest news and access a range of other content and advice on our website at gponline.com.